Holmes, and I am adopting this somewhat deeper voice, for it is Halloween, nearly. Ooh. If, uh, of course, you're listening to this later than Halloween, it isn't Halloween, and you, you, you know, completely destroyed my need to do that. And I am not alone. I am haunted, in fact, by two ghastly ghosts. One goes by the name of Eddie Webb. Good evening. And the other goes by the name of Dixie Cochran. Hi there! <laughs> Dixie is an un- insufferable ghost. The kind <laughs> that one might find in Casper. <laughs> Dixie, the friendly ghost. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've had more, more exorcists come to the Eisenhower house to... Uh, to dismiss or banish Dixie <laughs> actually threatening Eddie. Can I help you with anything? <laughs> How you doing? What's that? I'm trying to take a shit, Dixie. Is is how your <laughs> Dixie the friendly ghost? <laughs> uh, I can't wait for this to be taken out of context. Oh no. <laughs> Oh. I'm gonna make that my ringtone. Oh god, we're one minute and thirty six seconds into this. <laughs> I'm like, I can't breathe. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, other than being undead, how Ooh. are the both of you? How are you, Dixie? Friendly. <laughs> well, that's always a positive. Uh, I'm okay. It's October. Uh, you know, kind of. We're uh, barreling toward an election here in the U.S., so there's uh, lots of things happening. But past that, yeah. it's been okay. Yeah, I'd heard one or two things about it. It uh, seems somewhat important to the state of the world. Yeah, a little bit. A bit, a bit, a smidge. So, so fingers crossed, that goes well. And uh, how about you, Eddie? Uh, what have you been up to? Um... Not a whole lot. Uh, we have a new dog in the house. That's taking up a lot of my time. Let's talk about Darby. Yes, yes. Um, Darby is defying all expectations. A boxer. Not uh, a pug. Not a pug. No. Traitor. <laughs> well, we, we we talked about it, and it's the we had a number of pugs in our house, but honestly, we're also emotionally attached to them. Um, and so I think getting another pug for at least some of the family wasn't. It felt like it was trying to replace the old dogs to them. Uh, so um, we had been talking about possibly looking at other dogs and kind of back and forth. And then we just started looking at boxers as kind of a, oh, these are interesting. Let's learn about them. And then uh, we found Darby at a rescue um, and immediately stole our soul um, because uh, she is three years old, but she's a little skittish. Um, so she's not good around other dogs. She's apparently good around kids, but just not good around other dogs. Uh, and so a lot of people apparently adopting in the area right now are people looking for additional dogs. Mm-hmm. And so they were not, or their first dog, but as a puppy. Um, so they're always getting yeah. in that Venn diagram of neither, as it were. Um, and so we're like, well, that actually works for us really well. Uh, so we uh, got on the list immediately, kind of a, a visit with a foster. Um, and she's been great the past few days. Uh, she's, she's very well trained. Um, Again, she's skittish, so going out for walks, we live in the city, so um, she's a little anxious around cars and people that she doesn't know. Um, so we're getting her used and acclimated to just the activity around here. Our, our street is relatively quiet, but she also 
was fostered in an area that was kind of more rural Georgia. So she's not used to, you know, a car like once a day, more, you know, we do have right. frequently than that. Uh, but she doesn't bark much. She just, you know, gets a little kind of nervous around them. So she's Aww. been very quiet. Um, and she loves to snuggle even when you have a laptop in your lap and you're trying to get work done. Um, so, and she thinks she's a lap dog, even though she is 60 pounds of not a lap dog. <laughs> yeah. That was my experience when my, my aunt had a boxer was that like, I would go out in the backyard to play with them when they would come visit. Mm-hmm. And this, this dog was almost as big as I was. I mean, mm-hmm. at the time I was working a job that had me down to like 117 pounds. Mm-hmm. And this is a full grown male boxer. Like he was not a small dog. Right. Um, and yeah, like taking him for walks was like both both hands on the leash. Like he was just so ready to like run off all the time. Mm-hmm. But he was so sweet. Like he was never aggressive. He just was very strong and didn't realize that he was as strong as I was. Right. Yes. Yeah, so that's very much. Darby's also extremely strong, and she just she's starting to understand her strength. Um, but uh, uh, luckily, we have become even more active as a household. Because of, mm-hmm. of COVID and everything else, we've actually been going out and walking and running more. So she's encouraging us to continue that trend, which is actually good, I think, for us. Um, we are going out more and walking her, and we have um, a better sense of how to control her. Um, but we're also looking into things like uh, head collars, um, mm-hmm. uh, things that will better direct her without having to resort to things like shock collars or prong collars, because we won't use those, because no, those are horrible. Yeah. Um, we'd rather find more humane ways, but like head collars are great because, you know, the, the point of contact of their nose, you just kind of move their nose to the side and they're like, oh yeah, I can, you know, there, there's no real muscle there, but as opposed to kind of pulling their shoulders where there's nothing but muscle. <laughs> it's a bit of an effort and futility. So it's been a lot of learning, a lot of, a lot of educating ourselves on the differences, um, but mm-hmm. there's also a lot of similarities there. They, you have to be careful to laugh at them because they absolutely take that as encouragement. Um, so that's been sometimes a struggle when she does something really, really silly that we don't want her to do. And so it's just like, <laughs> yeah, well, oh yeah, that's, that's the parenting, uh, issue that often comes up when, oh, really? uh, oh yeah, my son, if he will come, he'll come out with something. Uh, he's, he's obsessed with just saying everything about bottoms and poo and we, <laughs> he's just, he's just reached that age and. Uh, it's very difficult to not laugh because yes, it's puerile, but he's also he also finds it hilarious. And uh, when someone's amused, it does tend to be contagious. So you don't want to tell them off because yeah, come on, there's not something worth telling someone off over. But you don't want to just find it hilarious. So yeah, finding that middle ground uh, so you're not just encouraging him to make every other word poo is. <laughs> It's sometimes a challenge, but I I've been um, I've also been getting out of it. Well, I've been um, going to the gym, and whenever I go oh, to nice. the gym, I listen to podcasts. And mm-hmm. so, further to Dixie's recommendation, so long ago, I've been listening to my dad made a wrote a porno. Yes, it's uh, so funny, yes. so and stupid, it, and it is very difficult working on some of the machines while right. hearing about. How uh, Belinda Blumenthal in the medium-sized maze, uh, whilst handcuffed to a trellis, is being serviced by Peter Peter Rowles. That's it, Peter Rowles. Um, wow. Who is a perfectly formed Dutchman. 
noted. And isn't the, he wearing a speedo in that scene? Uh, they're, they're all wearing speedos. Every man that enters the medium-sized maze is wearing a black, uh, black thong. Uh, and, and oddly, when the uh, when the character of Jim Sterling, not the internet personality Jim Sterling, oh my gosh. Uh, arrives in the maze, he is wearing a soiled thong, which never gets elaborated upon. It's just how Belinda sees him. She's <laughs> Um, when Jim Sterling arrived, I noticed his thong was already soiled. I thought, this is supposed to be erotic. But that, that seems to be the... Um... That's, that's the whole point of the <laughs> yeah, book. Yeah, um, Like, whatever Rocky Flintstone... That's, that's, that's his pen name, Eddie. Uh, whatever okay. Rocky Flintstone thinks is erotic is uh, not quite what most people do. Yeah. Uh, wow. When, during the height of passion... Uh, Peter Rouse starts daubing religious symbols in mud on Belinda's breasts, cheeks, and ears. <laughs> ears, in particular, was the... Uh, unusual... Yeah, that was so weird! <laughs> what? <laughs> I mean, it's unusual practice at the best of times, but she must have very large ears to fit religious iconography daubed in mud. Unless he's just very particular, you know, has very little finger, I don't know. He, he, uses um, pe- he uses paintbrushes to carefully yeah, yeah. <laughs> During the throes of passion, that's always what I do. So, <laughs> so yes, I have found that very difficult to work out to, but at the same time, it's been very good for you know leavening the mood. Yeah, no, I I remember when I was first listening to that a couple of years ago, like whenever it was it was first on. Like I'd, I'd I'd be driving with it on, and if 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 my windows were open and I had to stop at a stoplight, I would like roll the window up. Like I don't need other people to hear this because it was <laughs> you know just a British man narrating very bad porn. Um, and then also there were a couple times that I would listen to it while I was working at Sephora because uh, oh, no. you know I would have my like earbuds in when the store was closed and we were right. doing like updates and things, and I would just start laughing so hard because I was like, "What are you listening to?" And I was like, "I can't explain this. Like I, I, I can't explain this to random coworkers. <laughs> like there's a scene in like book two or three because there's like five of these books now. Oh, um, God, where uh, yeah, yeah, and Belinda Blink two, three, and four, which all have like subtitles that have semicolons and eighteen thousand words in them. Um, yeah. But yeah, so there's a scene in one of the later books where, you know, once again, of course, there's a sex scene happening. And, like, Blenda stops in the middle of it to, like, eat a turkey sandwich. (laughs) (laughs) And it's, like, the least sexy food I could think of. I was like, really? (laughs) Like, you're just, all right, this is happening right now. Uh, so yeah, I'd so recommend th- that if if anyone ever gets bored of the Onyx Pathcast, do check that already wildly successful podcast out. Yeah. Uh, also, in the later seasons, they have a lot of guests on the podcast to talk about the book, like after they read a chapter, and it's mm-hmm. it's, it's 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 people like Emma Thompson. Like it's not Small Beans guests. Like it's wow. very famous people. I think they have Elijah Wood on it. And one thing they do with all their celebrity guests is they ask them who they would play in the film adaptation. Um, and that's always fun. <laughs> oh my gosh! I think I think I think Daisy Ridley wants to play the Countess or the Duchess or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah, the Duchess. The, the yeah. Mysteri- at, at this point in my uh, saga of uh, my dad wrote a porno, uh, we have not yet been introduced to the Duchess, who was of course in the back cover blurb. And so there's a lot of mystery and anticipation surrounding <laughs> that character that can never be lived up to. Uh, when compared to Patrick O'Hanlon, the stereotypical Irishman, <laughs> and 
no. Oh, no. Well, this, yeah. is, this was a hell of a tangent. Who are we interviewing this week? Uh, Who are well, we following this up with? Uh, There's no well, segue. Yeah, There's I'll, no I'll, segue. I'll, I'll I don't want that. a segue. I don't want to put either of them into this. Well, I'll tell you what I will pull into this. It's that at the time of broadcast, we will have one day left on the Ghost Hunters Kickstarter. So if you're an on-the-ball uh, podcaster, pathcaster, then you will be listening to this on the day of release, of course, and leaving us reviews and ratings on the respective websites from which you download this podcast. But also, you will be checking out the Ghost Hunters Kickstarter because it only has one day left. We have hit all of the targets we hoped to hit, and everything now is gravy, quite frankly. We would love to hit a 1,000 backers, and I think we will. Uh, by the close of the 31st. So please do check out Ghost Hunters. I'm really happy with the episode we did about Ghost Hunters, if you haven't yeah, listened that to that. Yeah, a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, if you do get a chance to listen to that, it may convince you to back, but we're really pleased with this book, so please do check it out. And going So in order, Ghosts, review this, then back Kickstarter, then go listen to this podcast about pornos. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you could do that on Sunday because the, what, Halloween's Saturday, isn't it? So you can chill out on Sunday listening to a podcast about porno. <laughs> Very bad porn. Uh, so, uh, so Eddie, you brought it back around to the pornography. I was going to go from Ghost Hunters to V5 to our guests. But speaking of <laughs> pornography, our two guests... No, don't, don't bring them into this. Uh, speaking of Vampire the Masquerade... Uh, our two guests are Clara Herbal and John Burke, who frequent listeners will know we've interviewed before on the podcast uh, individually, uh, long, long ago for Clara, and uh, a bit closer to now with John. But they are new to the development scene of developing RPGs. They've been writing for a few years now each, uh, but they've recently been co-developing some books for Vampire the Masquerade 5th Edition alongside myself, and that's been very exciting. So we thought we would get them on the Pathcast as a team, and um, myself and the two of them, we had a bit of a roundtable discussion slash interview where we talk about... Um, books, development, the approval process, and so on. So in this case, Eddie and Dixie, I am going to be, hmm, usually we've got the cupboard for Eddie, we've got the chest for Dixie. I'm thinking we can mm. mix it up a little. I'm thinking we can put Dixie in the cupboard. No, Dixie, you can go in the compartment behind the uh, Eisenhower, Mrs. Eisenhower painting. <laughs> okay, all right, all right. So you can look Let's through the Let's crawl up eyes. in there. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah, so you can spook out anyone who arrives in the house because this is Halloween after all. My eyes and... are kind of puggish. They're very dark brown. Yeah. And <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what I was thinking all along. And, <laughs> and, and Eddie, I think we could put you underneath the floorboards. So, oh, so, okay. So. Like so a telltale heart situation? I was thinking, yeah. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Uh, except occasionally you'll be moaning or screaming in pain because the floorboards in part of the house are very loose. We do need to get someone to look at them. And that means whenever someone walks on them, you do stand the chance of having a plank driven into your nether regions. So I'm... I'm <laughs> Jesus Christ, Matthew! Not a fan of this plan, just to be clear. Um, well, whether you're a fan of it or not, that is where you are going. So we will reprise with our co-hosts after the interview. Welcome back to the 
Quentin Tarantino, and I am here with my stunning guests, stars of the role-playing game industry, two individuals of which I am a massive fan. And my Quentin Tarantino is going to stop at this point. The reason I'm doing Quentin Tarantino is because my login for Zencaster is the same as Eddie's login for Zencaster. And uh, when I was initially discussing with my guests um, whether I should do the interview as Eddie, I discovered my Eddie Webb impersonation is identical to my Quentin Tarantino impersonation. And... Uh, there was a bit of debate, should I go ahead, do a full hour as Quentin Webb? And the general consensus, at least from Clara's side, was no. So, Clara, why do you hate Quentin Tarantino? I, I don't hate Quentin Tarantino. I hate your impersonation of him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's kind to Quentin. Hello, that's everyone. kind to me. Yes, welcome back, Clara. It's lovely to have you here again on the Onyx Pathcast. It's been a while, hasn't it? It has, yeah, but I'm glad to be back. Yeah, last time was, what, the UK Games Expo, I suppose? Yes, before wow. the virus Before the hit. world changed, yes, over a year ago now. Mm -hmm. And on the subject of Quentin Tarantino, because we are known on this podcast to never stick to topics, what is your favourite Quentin Tarantino movie? Um... Yeah, you weren't expecting this. Coming in yeah, fast that... with the hard questions. <laughs> I would have to say... <sighs> Maybe. Do Kill I need Bill? to come back to you? Oh, Kill, Kill Bill? That's an interesting yeah. one. Kill Bill Volume 1 yeah. or 2 or the whole yeah. package? Um, volume 1. 2 was good too, but 1 is the best. Hmm, interesting. Okay, well we may have to dig into that a little more as we get to know our guest. And what's your least favourite Quentin Tarantino movie? Um... <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's the one with the, the, the guys in the, in, the, in the cabin in the snow? What's it called? Um, Hateful Eight. Yes, I think that must be the one. Yeah, um, so if Quentin Tarantino is listening, I think he probably was smiling for the first minute or so of this interview when he heard that uh, Clara Herbal is a fan of his, likes him, and then his latest movie, she is just trashed. So he's now sad. Yeah. He's very sad. <laughs> and uh, Clara isn't alone. Uh, I am interviewing two individuals for this episode, and the other individual is Mr. John Burke. Hello, John. When he says Clara isn't alone, I'm not actually in our house. Social distancing is being respected. I just want to be clear. <laughs> you could have done a nice they came from Camp Murder Lake then and saying, I am recording from her attic. I could have done that, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously lacking the gift of foresight and my marketing abilities there. So there you I'm, go. I'm, I better go in some sort of course. That's what I think. Yes, I think a course to, to identify your acquisition customers would probably be the best way of... Of, of coming up with a well-improvised response to that sort of thing. And, John, are you a fan of Quentin Tarantino movies? Uh, yeah, on the whole. Uh, and which is your favourite? Probably, well, I think the one I've watched the most, um, or that I go back to the most, is probably Inglorious Bastards, funnily enough. Interesting. Okay, so often when people get posed this question, not that anyone has ever been posed this question before on the Onyx Pathcast in 100 plus <laughs> episodes, they go for Reservoir Dogs or Pulp Fiction, mm. although arguably Jackie Brown is the best artistically. Um, so John, your least favourite? I'd have to agree with Clara and say that The Hateful Eight is probably my least favourite. 
Mm, okay, um, all right. I didn't necessarily dislike it, which is just the one I probably... I've watched it once, look at that way. The other ones, I think I've seen every other film of his at least twice. So, yeah, I would yeah, say so definitely that one. It's interesting, isn't it? Quentin Tarantino is a director whose movies, oh, I guess at least speaking for myself, I do find myself re-watching them, even if I didn't enjoy them as much as some other movie. I just find myself easily slipping back into them as an audience member. I think he's got a great ability of casting people <laughs> because I think some of the performances that I've seen, in it, as I say, the, the reason I keep going back to Inglorious Bastards is Christoph Waltz, who is sensational in yes. that movie. So, yeah. I mean, that intro scene, I could just watch that on repeat for about an hour, even without watching the whole film, and just be quite <laughs> content that Guy's absolutely brilliant in that. So, yeah. No, no, I have to agree. Crystal Faults is amazing and glorious bastards. Uh, and we have to... We have to depart this dream of Quentin Tarantino now. Unfortunately for us, the dream has come to an end, as they say in uh, the much-beloved MasterChef Australia. And the reason people are listening isn't to discuss your or to listen to your movie recommendations, uh, but to listen to you talk about Vampire the Masquerade. Although we might get back to movies because we've got to fill up a fair amount of time. And how long can anyone talk about Vampire, really? So let's get on to why we're here. Vampire the Masquerade, fifth edition. Uh, recently, the both of you have come on board as co-developers for V5 Projects under Onyx Path Publishing. I approached both of you with the offer, would you like to co-develop a book with me? And happily, you both accepted the task without knowing the full responsibilities that that entails. As part of this interview, no doubt, uh, we will discuss what some of those responsibilities are and how some of them might have caught you off guard or some of them may have been things you really enjoyed. But we will also be talking about the content of your books. So let's start with you, Clara. Have you, before co-developing this book, developed a project before? Whether it's a book, uh, I guess, uh, something for a team of people, uh, managed a team uh, in this workplace or any other? Um, I mean... Uh, due to my nursing job, I, I sometimes manage um, meetings where we educate each other. Basically, if someone has had some some interest in a in a subject, we talk to each other and manage like a, I guess a a talk or or something like that where we kind of share our knowledge. Um, I don't know if that counts developing something, but it, I guess it is like making a project and and conveying it to a group of people. And sometimes uh, you have to oversee the development of uh, newer nurses and stu medical students, don't you? That's very true. Yeah, I do. Um, so that's, that's something I do too. Um, when it comes to creative projects, I haven't. I <laughs> worked alone in a lot of my projects, um, well, uh, when it comes to things like I, I do painting and stuff, but uh, when it comes to writing, of course, I always write in a team, and I think that always takes some some individual development too, where you kind of have to, you know, know that you're working with other people. And, and uh, I guess the big question is, how did you find, on the whole, 
developing a role-playing game supplement. Admittedly, you know, you were co-developing alongside me, but how did you find the development process? I mean, I, I thought it was exciting. I thought it was, you know, first of all, just a new thing for me. I approached it with curiosity and and thought, you know, um, this is a learning process for me because I've never tried it before. And, and the fact that we could have someone as, well, into d- development as you um, helping us was, I think, was very nice for me. Um, so I had someone that could support what was happening because it's a, it's it's completely new you know it's new to go from being a writer and then having to oversee a project and oversee other writers and and um kind of hold the the ends of all the ropes um and making sure everything is functioning but i thought it was yeah. really interesting i thought it was a good learning experience even if you know i never develop another book i know now what the the other side is um <laughs> uh so all very positive for me yeah very um interesting well no, that's interesting to me um and for the sake of the listeners uh, i've not yet had a post book review meeting with uh, with john or clara so some of what i hear in this interview may actually be news to my ears and that, that's fine by me. Uh, you know, they might say that working with me absolutely sucked. And if that's the case, I'll, I'll be sad, but it will make for an interesting headline. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I'm glad you didn't say that. But I, I completely know what you mean in terms of it being well, a bit of a revelation, I guess, learning these new things. Because when I first started developing books for Onyx Path, um, and Onyx Path was the first company that I... Uh, co-developed a role-playing game for because my first project was a co-development one uh, with Neil Price of Neil Ramon Price on uh, Beckett's Jihad Diary. The only real foreknowledge I had of the process was from the writer's perspective. So I knew that my that I would have to redline work and I knew that I would have to develop work, but I didn't really know how much work that entailed. And I didn't know how in-depth to go, how constructive I needed to be in my feedback, how critical I needed to be in my feedback, that kind of thing. Um, And I guess, and I don't want to make this sound too much like a job interview, because obviously this is entertainment, but how would you say you you handled that from your perspective? Um, Were you, did you enjoy it? Did you find it a challenge? Uh, Both? Oh, it's definitely a challenge. I mean, it wasn't easy at all. Um, I think because of how many red lines I've gotten back, uh, that <laughs> kind of gave me an idea of, you know, okay, this is the direction I have to go and I'll try to make it as constructive and um, usable for the writer as possible because I know, you know, when I've received red lines, not necessarily from you, Matthew, but from, from other instances where it's been a lot of no's, but not a lot of constructive criticism, you know, not a helping hand, not mm-hmm. any guiding, not, not nothing that could really, you know, help you, okay, figuring out what you need to do. Um, I know for a fact that that can, that can be a bit difficult to work with and it can be emotionally frustrating to get something like that back. Because you 
want to do a good job when you're a writer. So getting a lot of no's and no help can be pretty frustrating. So that was definitely my approach with my red lines was like, okay, if I was a writer, what kind of red lines would I like to get back that would be constructive and help me make this piece better? So yeah, that was my approach. You know, be humble, uh, tell the, the team, hey, I'm new too. I haven't tried developing before. Um, so if I write something in the red lines that's completely ridiculous or something that I just misunderstood, just let me know and we'll talk about it. Yeah, and well, I, you know, I can speak for myself. I know that sometimes uh, in my feedback, whether it's red lines to you or to John, and I have not forgotten you're, you're there, John. I will get to you in a sec. Uh, <laughs> Uh, that sometimes I have fallen into the pit of being overly critical. I know that. Sometimes, especially if you've redlined lots and lots of drafts back-to-back, if you're seeing the same error, for instance, repeat itself, or if you are just getting tired uh, of redlining, that can bleed through into your commentary. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's a hard thing to kind of shave down because... It's easy as a developer when you're the person responsible for reviewing another writer's work um, for you to, I guess, almost take it personally in a in a strange way uh, that you know that you you ask yourself the question why isn't the writer getting this when sympathetically, if we take a step back we know that the writer is making the same mistake repeatedly in the same draft because no one has corrected them the first time. Uh, we haven't started redlining their work until they get to the end of it. So of course they're going to make the same error over and over again. Uh, what we've got to hope is that if we provide constructive feedback in the red lines, come the next draft they do, uh, they won't then repeat it because hopefully they will learn from that commentary. But you know, I was I was really happy with the experience of co-developing a book with you, Clara, and I think well, you know you uh, well, yeah, um, uh, and I I look forward to doing it more. And but on the flip side, then we have you, John. <laughs> <laughs> you'll, never, you'll never catch me in the flip side. <laughs> and uh, and John, I guess same question to you before you came on board as a developer of, uh, of role-playing games with myself. Um, what's your experience in terms of managing teams, managing people, and managing this kind of thing? Um, well, my job is like politically sort of <laughs> rooted. So I've, I've, in terms of things being drafted, redrafted a thousand times, and you having to be the one that finally says, right, it's going like this, you know? Um, <laughs> I, I have been involved in that sort of thing. Um, on a personal level, um, I was in charge of quite a big role-playing game at one point um, where there was a lot of um, story writing and a lot of editing and developing of that to some extent. Um, and eventually they just, everyone else just went sod it, slip worked it. So... <laughs> um, uh, so this is the Vampire the Masquerade YouTube experiment that yeah. uh, we discussed in the previous interview uh, when we interviewed you for Cults of the Blood Gods. Yes. Um, so, yeah, eventually I was just developing myself, so that didn't really count. Um, but no, I would say that sort of side of it. I, I think I've got most of my most of my experience of developing came from writing. Um, so it was what I observed of what the development process was. Um, and I, well, as you'll know, as you've developed me a few times, 
Um, I ask a lot of questions quite often, <laughs> but mainly because I want to know what is going on and what it is that was getting done. Um, and even then, I don't think I got anywhere near the full picture as to what actually is involved in it. And what what took you by surprise? Just the there's just more to it than I thought. I think is how I would put it. Um, when you look at it from the writer's perspective, obviously you, you can get the picture of red lines. You read someone's draft, you go, oh, "Change this, change that," basically. Like, and um, you know, as Clara said, I tried to keep my comments helpful um, rather than just "Don't do this." Um, mm. Unless it was literally just, I need to just be frank here and say, ah, just don't do that, do something else. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I think, so So you've got a good bead on what that is just from writing in general. But then everything that comes after, I mean, I think I was talking to you about this a while back, um, and I described the writing thing as fire and forget, as they say. Yeah. Um, so you basically fire off your final draft and you don't ever see anything after that. Um, and because nothing really comes back, I mean, occasionally you might see a developed draft in the Dropbox or something, um, or you'll see it in the Kickstarter and go, oh, that's not exactly what I wrote, you know. Um, but you don't understand what it took to get from A to, like, C, if you want. There's a B that you don't know about. Yeah. Um, and that was the stuff, basically everything that goes on between um, the developers, if you want, even discussing it, and then everything that goes on between them and the publishers and um in terms of what comes back from that side, I had no idea about any of that. And actually how much the developer stands up for these writers or her writers or their writers. Um, yeah, just I thought was it was a bit eye-opening to me because I'd never considered that before. Well, that actually brings me on to another point. And um, I should should hasten to add again for the listeners' sake and for John's sake uh, that co-developing with John was a pleasure as well. Uh, very communicative uh, developer, excellent team player, and uh, yeah, uh, both of you. I'm all well. I've been happy working with you for several years now, both of you. Um, <laughs> since what I guess 2017, 18, we've been on various books with each other. And uh, obviously, this is the first time we've been developing books together, which has been a joy. But um, something crucial that you two have experienced that not everyone gets to as a developer is the what's called the approval process. So for the sake of the listeners, uh, the approval process is we send the manuscript for the book to Paradox, because Vampire the Masquerade is, of course, owned by Paradox, and we create books under license. Um, and Paradox have the right to review a manuscript. They review the outline, and, well, they review the pitch, and hopefully they approve it. They review the outline, and hopefully they approve it. And at any point, they can request changes. Then they review the manuscript. This is after it's been developed. So the writers have done their bit. The developers have done their bit as well to polish off the book, make everything internally consistent. They send it off to Paradox. Paradox send it back. Hopefully, either just with praise or with no commentary at all. 
but because of course vampire the masquerade is a very important property they are likely to make suggestions for changes offer criticism uh, say whether something doesn't work because there's another game being made that might reference this thing or that thing and i think i mentioned in the cults of the blood gods interview or in an episode around it that there was an entire cult we had to downsize from around 5,000 words to 500 words for exactly that reason. Uh, And that was at manuscript approval stage. So my question to both of you, and uh, I guess let's let's go to Clara first, is how did you find that manuscript approval process? Um, What were the challenges? And, you know, was it was it largely a positive experience? Um, I mean... And feel free to be candid. <laughs> yeah, so I, I I, love teamwork, you know, and I love when everyone is in on, you know, the process. Um, and I kind of feel like, you know, maybe when they the project got to approval and we got it back, I kind of felt like, you know some of the red lines were like, well, if you've been here <laughs> during the <laughs> process, you would have known that this and this and that, and you would have known this and that. But because we kind of just have, you know, those that instance in the beginning and in the end, and they don't really see the interim, they don't see what's, what's going on, they don't, they're not a part of, of the writing process, they're not communicating with the writers, we are, and I know that that's our job as, as developers, but it kind of yeah. feels like you're just sending it off to someone who hasn't been a part of what has been going on. And I think that was what was the most frustrating to me, um, that it was just, you know, sent off to yeah someone that didn't really know what what we had to deal with, the troubleshooting process, you know, the solutions we had to come up with to make the book work. Um, so it's kind of like this this unknown that was sent to and then we hope that they understand what we were going for and then you know it comes back and we're like oh okay mm, i mean ugh, that kind of sucks because we've really tried to make this work so i, I guess yeah. i'm talking from frustration as well because it can be kind of frustrating to get um you know feedback back from someone where you just like you don't know what is what has been happening um yeah uh, it can leave you feel, feeling shaken can't it because you, Again, yeah. as you as you say you're firing the manuscript off kind of into the void and you know that at some point it's going to come back maybe with feedback maybe not and ultimately whatever that feedback is um you can negotiate it you can discuss it, it isn't like uh, if they tell us to do something we absolutely have to do it mm. but um it's still if we decide that we're going to go against that feedback we of course have to talk it over to them and get them to agree that we're going to go against it um and yeah i think it's it's strange because obviously with some properties we don't have that step of a book's development uh, in a in a sense the developers are the final arbiters of what's going to be going inside the developers and rich thomas um especially if it's a property owned by Onyx Path. But when it is a licensed property, whether it's Vampire, whether it's Pugmire, whether it's Dystopia Rising, there's another party who has their own vision. And it's not necessarily a vision that we are privy to until the time comes that the book is already 
all but written. So yeah, it can be a bit nerve wracking. And then of course, if there is critical feedback, it can be a bit deflating at first. Yeah, um, it can. So John, I'm going to pose you the challenging question of what's the, what is the positive out of a process like that? Oh, how long have you got? Um, <laughs> no, seriously though, like, I think the word you used there was a vision. Um, and to me, that's, that's, that's what it's about. Um, as you said, we are developing a book for someone, <laughs> you know, and, and, and with the best will in the world, I think everyone involved in certainly my project was um, the, you know, some of the biggest fans, if you want, of the property that, that I know. Um, so they were certainly, there was no, there was no lack of uh, desire to do well and um, sort of knowledge of it and that on their side. Um but what you have to contend with, and certainly as a developer, because and you don't as a writer at all, because as I say, it's fire and forget. You throw the draft in, it looks good to you. Mm. But what you're not dealing with is the the the, the vision of the the, the licensor, I suppose. Um, yeah. The, the licensee, which is it anyway? We 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 are the licensee. They are the licensor. They are the or. Okay. Mm. They um, are the or. <laughs> we, we are the or. We, yes, and we must forge the or into something. Smelt the or into something <laughs> usable. Try to paddle it down this shit creek that we're in. Um, <laughs> <laughs> not not that kind of or. So um, yeah, the, the 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 positive is that you get that you know, and they're certainly very frank about it. Like they just tell you that no, this is this is what we're looking for. This is what we're looking for, and I find some of what they said quite helpful. Um, and certainly, you know, pushed us in the right direction um, and got us to where we needed to go. Uh, and I thought that the finished product, um, in so far as I've seen, is, um, you know, very good. <laughs> and I can tell that yeah, yeah, this is they're they're looking to move away from X and towards Y. Um, so that's helpful. Um, the issue with that as a developer, um, as Clara alluded to, is. That I mean, I don't know how you felt, Clara, but I certainly did. That it's like I should have communicated this better. I've, you know, the writers have have produced what I asked them to, as far as I'm concerned. The issue is if they're saying, "Oh, that's not this isn't what we were looking for," then to me it was almost like I've kind of let these guys down a bit because I should have I should have known that and I should have told them that. But you know, for the best man in the world, I believed what I was telling them was correct. But you're sort of like, well. When I was pitching to them, saying I want you to write this, and there, you know, we had meetings. These guys, you know, they gave me their feedback, and I'm sitting there saying, "Yeah, great," you know. <laughs> and then later on, it's like, "No, this is entirely not the thing." And you're sort of like, "Okay, well, you know," and and, and you know that the writer's going to see that, and the fit that the final version kind of go, "Oh, that's been changed an awful lot." Like that's not. Because I mean, it's happened to me before, you know. Mm. Um, I'm not immune to that. And you look at it, and you kind of think, "God, what was wrong with the way it was?" Like, um, you know, and you're you're thinking, "This is what you told me." Like, why am I not? But the fact is, it's not necessarily um, their fault, um, and I felt responsible for that to some extent. Um, but um, certainly, another thing I've learned as being a, a writer is that 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 frankness is useful because you then get a better bead on it. So certainly, the next time. Um, I would feel more equipped because I think I would be going all out in the beginning of the process to make sure I was 100% clear that everything I was feeding back to the writers was correct and exactly what 
uh, they were looking for. So that's, to me, the useful side of it is that you develop that relationship and you develop that understanding as you go along. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. You feel a lot of responsibility, right? And I think that's kind of new for me, where it's like, okay, I'm actually... I actually have responsibility towards all of these writers on this project and I want them to have a good process and I want this product to be good. You don't, you're not just sitting in your own bubble and writing your own chapter and you're like done and gone. Um, you, you have a responsibility towards other people, um, which is really the tough thing about this. You want it to go well. Um, and I also think, you know, uh, if we're talking about, you know, frustrating things with this process is also that, you know, we will, we will get an outline, you know, um, and, and that outline has been approved by our licensor and we do as the outline says, uh, we try our best at least. And then they, we deliver the book and they say, nope. We've changed our minds. We want this entire chapter gone. Or we want this half of this chapter gone. And so we are, as developers, standing back with the responsibility to talking to the writer and, and feeling bad, as you said, John, like feeling bad. Did I did I do the best I could here as a developer? When the truth is, this is no one's fault. The truth is that these changes happen in a process. It's so frustrating for the writer, for the developer, for everyone. But it does happen. And I think it's something you just need to be aware of as a writer and as a developer. Just need to know yeah. that that can happen. I think that's very good advice. Uh, it's very easy as a writer to take it personally. Uh, if you have, of course, committed days of work into writing something, you know, you've anguished over this uh, assignment. And then when the book comes out, you find out that thing you, you poured your blood into is cut uh, from the book. And so, I mean, with this process, and this happens with pretty much every licensed uh, property, but especially with Vampire, because, again, it is a very important property, and Paradox have a very definitive vision for it. It's that sometimes things just don't gel with that, and that means sometimes content does end up getting cut before it makes it to the final product. And uh, I remember when, hell, I mean, uh, this is the kind of thing that I'm probably not supposed to cite but i remember when uh, the camarilla book came out for vampire the masquerade and of course there was a lot of controversy surrounding that due to my co-author's um contribution to that book um and some of the material that wasn't uh, particularly well received and for good reason and it was cut ultimately from the finalized version of the book replaced with some different material and there were some people who were screaming censorship, that this is, you're denying the fans the full picture. You're denying the customers the full picture of what should be in there. But the way to view it, the correct way to view it, in my view, is not censorship, it's just editing. It's quality control. And we do not have the full sight of what is good in the eyes of the licensor. We don't know always what we can and can't include because a meta plot as wide and diverse as Vampire the Masquerade has so many beats, there is no way to state that you can't include this character who appears in LA by night, the original book, because we have them planned to appear in a board game that hasn't yet been written, um, because there's no way of knowing that until it comes time to approve the manuscript. 
And that doesn't mean that people are being denied good material. It just means that ultimately, sometimes a decision has to be made. It's like a character being cut from a TV show because their storyline wasn't going anywhere or because the actor had to get another job. Um, But anyway, this is all getting into the weeds. We're talking a lot about the process, but we're not talking about the products. And the listeners who have been listening to this have been very diligent, very, very, uh, I guess, patient with us while we've been talking a lot about the weeds. And so let's talk about the fun stuff. And we can start, Clara, by talking about Children of the Blood. Uh, So Children of the Blood was initially titled The Faithful Undead. And in the end, I spoke to you and I said, I think we should change the title. And the reason I suggested that is because, one, I didn't think Faithful Undead was a particularly strong title. Uh, and two, we've already got several books that are children of the, which are collections of characters. We've got Children of the Inquisition, all the way back in first edition, Children of the Night for revised edition, Children of the Revolution for V20, and so Children of the Blood, it feels appropriate, especially as a tie-in to Cults of the Blood Gods. So why don't you tell the listeners what Children of the Blood is all about? Well, um, what is Children of the Blood all about? Well, first of all, it's a collection of of NPCs. It is a collection of NPCs that you can use in in any game, really. Um, But, you know, specifically um, um, Calls of the Blood Gods, uh, because it has, I think, really good examples of Characters that could easily be cultists <laughs> without saying too much. Um, and characters that, despite having that aspect to them, are still really in-depth, interesting, fleshed-out characters that you can use in so many ways. It's like a box full of toys for the storyteller. And that is really what... I wanted and I think also what Matthew wanted with this book is something you can pick up as a storyteller and say okay I need an NPC for this game and I need them to be this and that and you can find that in in Children of the Blood that is um, that is definitely one of the main parts of the books um, we also have new advantages in the book um, mm-hmm which is always exciting. It's always exciting when you get new, uh, you know, new ways to improve your character. Um, and we have called coteries, of course. Um, so coteries, um, as understood in the V5 way, um, and uh, set as, as cults, basically. Yeah, uh, and some of those coteries, as well as using characters from the book to establish how cultists of multiple faiths could form a singular coterie. There's different mm-hmm. coterie types. Um, some of those advantages, they include new merits and flaws and new law sheets. And I think the way you put it, a, a toy, you know, a box of toys, uh, is a good way to good way to express it because. Not all of the vampires and children of the blood are definitively antagonistic either. You can 
sort of use them, pose them, and position them however you choose in your stories. You can add them to an existing city story. You can set an entire story around them as the big bad, Mm -hmm. if you like. And so you've got vampires of varying power levels, haven't you? I think we've got a lot of... A lot of fledglings and neonates in there. We've got some Ancilla, we've got some Elders. Yep. And do you have any particular favourites among the characters? Um, I mean, I, I think I do have a soft spot for, um, for Gloria Gums, or Gloria Flores Gums, because the simple fact that she's a Nosferatu vampire that's a makeup artist, I mean... That I think that's so contradictive. It's it's amazing. I love it, and I, it's it's written in such an evocative way that it is. I immediately got an image of who Gloria Gums was, um, and <laughs> she her when in short she was a very popular Hollywood Hills um, makeup artist that all of. You know the big shots and um, all of the celebrities would use, and she had a very good career. She was great at what she did, and she was hired by well, a vampire, Nosferatu vampire, to uh, do his makeup, and because she reacted with less than a positive uh, <laughs> facial expression when he saw what she was going to work with. Um, he decided to embrace her and divorce her demise. And she quickly become went from, from being Gloria, the magnificent makeup artist, to Gums, this creature. And the reason why she's called Gums is because her her entire head is, is basically... If you've seen... Uh, this is what I'm imagining what, when I read her. I mean, you can read it herself and, and find out what your image is of her. But when I read her, I imagine uh, the, how Canadians are portrayed in South Park. <laughs> her hair uh, half cut open almost. I'm sure it's much more gory than that. Um, but that's basically what I'm... <laughs> A game of personal uh, horror. Um, so basically uh, she's got a head like a Pez dispenser. Pretty much, yeah, like a garbage can. <laughs> and and you're not just saying this because and you you may have forgotten this, Clara, or you may be saying this intentionally just to butter him up. But I think I think we have the author of Gums here in the room with us. <laughs> yes, you do. And I have to say that that, um, that description of the, <laughs> the Canadian John. Is, oh, yeah. John, was That's... that what you were going for? Yeah, she is. She is, she is all mouth, you know. <laughs> is that no, a f- fun seriously. fact? Fun fact about gums. That's actually a character that I ran in a game for Vampire the Masquerade YouTube experiment, um, and none of those people I think knew that the character was female. So disfigured are they? That you just you, what is it? It's a monster, basically. Like there's no way you can tell, um, and can't even speak or do anything because it's just literally yeah. a huge mouth. <laughs> no viable words can come out of. Anyway, I'm glad you I enjoyed that. I think her, enjoyed her, quote is, her quote is guttural grunts and growls. Yeah. Uh, yeah, she doesn't have much more to say than that. Uh, one thing I actually yeah. found very interesting with Children of the Blood is how 
inadvertently we broke the gender stereotype for clans. And this is something I occasionally bring up in interviews and episodes of the Pathcast, that often, uh, especially new players to Vampire, see Nosferatu as male, see Torridor as female, see Ventru as male, and that you know that there's some clans that in some people's minds have quite strong gender distinctions and this is just anecdotal uh, from my experience of playing with people that for instance the majority of people that play Toreador make female Toreador um, and I believe I know for a fact that all the Nosferatu in this book are women uh, and I think all of the Toreador in the book are men and it wasn't by design uh, it was just an interesting an interesting occurrence that made me think, oh, okay, so people can be creative. <laughs> um, people can come up with characters that don't fit the the, the stereotype, I guess. But um, yeah, there's a whole lot of excellent characters in Children of the Blood, and I'm um, very fond of uh, Baptiste, a really cruel and nasty uh, character, uh, Roberto Vega, who is a Tremere that has joined the Church of Set. Uh, and all of these characters have a cult affiliation, uh, whether it's to a major cult like the Church of Cain or the Church of Set or what have you, or whether it's to their own sort of small personal following, uh, like our we've got... Um, Mr. Star uh, with Starfall Ranch, the Malkavian, who mm-hmm. basically invites people to his ranch to experience the possibility of Golconda. But in fact, it's a Malkavian Madness Network uh, drive in a way that's in a Malkovich, John, being John Malkovich way, they are inserting their souls <laughs> or their uh, personas in new hosts. It's a very weird thing through to Father Christian Patriot, uh, who was a, a character I introduced to the book, uh, who is utterly deplorable, and uh, just has a very small uh, community in uh, the sticks of America, uh, following dedicatedly following him, even though all he really cares about is his immediate grasp on power. Uh, it's It's got a lovely range of power levels. We've even got a prince in there by the end. So... Yeah, hopefully people are looking forward to that. But John, yeah, and, we've and, oh, sorry, oh, sorry, Clara, you go ahead. I'll just say that one thing that I really enjoy about um, the book is the fact that we have so much focus on young vampires. That it's not just a book of very powerful vampires that you know sometimes can be a little difficult to fit into a story because just the nature of what being an elder is like. Um, I, I love that, and I think it, it fits into V5 pretty well because, you know, there's such a focus on humanity and they are, despite being cult members or leaders, still very much in, in touch with their their humanity. And I'll also say something that actually just occurred to me is I think most of them could both go as cult leaders, cult followers, is play some kind of role if you want to drive like a cult uh cold focus game yeah i completely agree uh, it was part of what we were aiming for and i think we definitely hit that obviously the eventual readers will be the deciding vote but i um, i'm looking forward to seeing what our artists come up with for characters like gums 
because uh, for some of the characters, I was able to send photographic references to our art director, Mike Cheney. For Gums, I didn't even think to put in Terence and Philip. And, <laughs> uh, and I guess well, I should be glad. Yeah. Contact him right away. <laughs> Uh, so, John, uh, you were co-developing Forbidden Religions, which didn't go through a title change. And some the way I've alluded to this book in other episodes is if the Church of Set, the Bahari, the Church of Cain, Ashfinders, and so on are in Cults of the Blood Gods, and most of them are pretty deplorable as philosophies, what would you have to do to have a religion that's forbidden in cult in Vampire the Masquerade? And so we've got Forbidden Religions, which covers an interesting array of cults, but why don't you tell the listeners what's in the book? Well, I think um, that forbidden is probably the right word for a lot of these. Um, the, the writers certainly went from the ridiculous to the sublime. Um, so you've, you've got everything from cults that literally and, and genuinely believe they can save you um, and uplift you and make you a better person and put you in touch with greater and, and a greater respect with your humanity and everything, in fact, or transcend it entirely and be more than human, as they say in Blade Runner. Um, <laughs> right, right down to the sod it, we are evil, horrible bastards and must kill everyone in the most horrendous ways possible, right down to literally we will cultivate our herd in the way that a, a, a gourmet does and, and the, the genuine belief that it will flavour them and worship the experience of, of delight in that sensation of taste. Um, <laughs> down to just snake oil salesmen who... Have essentially just created this cult around themselves in order to further their own desires for power and thirst for vengeance or lust or whatever that happens to be. And all these drives are there. I think that the the number one thing you'll find in forbidden religions, though, is ideas. Uh, because as Clara again was saying about uh, children, it's it's very much in line with that. Insofar as what it gives you is a toolbox if you're if you want to run a game of vampire and you're just thinking what can i what can i put in my city what can i do to make it jump out the page what can i do to make it more interesting i mean certainly these are things that i always did when i was running games um is going to the idea of the kindred in the city not being homogenous in their belief not having you know, one idea of what's real and what isn't. You know, they've not all got copies of the core book, and they're like, "All oh, right, so that's the that's what's really happening here." Um, they've all tried to figure something out for themselves, and I think what Forbidden Religions gives you is a, a, a box of great ideas for what on earth could these blood drinking monsters be thinking? These people who have literally survived dying. These people who have come from a world which is very cynical, very science based, very. Um, if you want moving away from religion um, to suddenly being thrown into the thing of, oh no, there's vampires and there's magic and there's all this <laughs> and and what what sort of disarray that could throw your entire value structure and belief structure into and, and what sort of things that could make you turn to and what your new, how you could justify your new reality. Um, if you're looking for that sort of depth to your games, then you want to get a hold of this supplement because it will give you so many suggestions for 
just how crazy or how enlightened your kindred could become. And uh, do you have any favourite cults in this book? Oh, um... I know it's like uh, expecting you to pick children, uh, choose your favourite. Uh, <laughs> given that this is the um, now Clara did it with no no problems at all. She went for the uh, Canadian. <laughs> uh... <laughs> Canadians. Um, no, I actually think the one that I would say that I was most tickled by personally was the Penny Dining Club. Um, I just thought it was a really cool idea for um, for let's let's go back to the thing as you, as I have explained to you all I, I work in politics in the UK right? um, and the Penny Dining Club is very much the sort of people you may encounter right? Um, the sort of what, what you know the, the, the chinless three-toed yeah, born to rule yeah sort of old money aristocracy um, kind of people that, that doing things to pigs at initiation uh, ceremonies yeah, that, that seem to gravitate towards prestigious universities um, and end up in politics after doing philosophy but um, yeah <laughs> I, if, if, I couldn't think who you're talking about <laughs> right now. if one of those people got embraced they would be in the Penny Dining Club, I can assure you, 100%. And it was one of those things that I laughed when I was reading it, but not because it's funny in the slightest, right? Just because of how it connected so viscerally with... If you were to, as I say, caricature these people in a horrible way, in a more horrible way than possibly you already have, right? Then this is what you would you would put them in. And essentially what it is, is a very Billington club, um, which is an Oxford University uh, sort of um, association of very wealthy, very powerful um, people from generally ar- aristocratic or landed families. Um, and they've all been embraced and they essentially maintain, I think I alluded to earlier, this society where they cultivate people. <laughs> they, mm. they, 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 they get them to do certain things, eat a certain way, to train their bodies in a certain way or to not, or, you know, to eat nothing but fatty things or whatever. Um, they, it doesn't stop with humans. They have, they, they drink blood from endangered animals. They drink blood from basically anything um, that they think might be um, sort of scrumptious to them, essentially. And it all comes down to these, uh, this coterie, this, this Bullenden club of very old vampires who are bored, basically, and who are like, worship this idea of experience and mm. this, this this breakthrough that they had um, that's what drives them to do what they do and I just thought it was really well written and really evocative and as I say it jumped out from someone from my background it jumped out at me um, and grabbed me with the scruff of the neck and went use this in a game and I definitely will <laughs> I think uh, what I particularly liked about the Penny Dining Club is it feels like they could fit into most any uh, domain uh, in the sense that there is always the the elite, there is always the the rich and entitled to form their own little club and expect the others to toe the line or just to be left in peace so they can do their own horrible, depraved acts. And some of the cults in uh, forbidden religions 
I feel are, and I know one shouldn't prescribe this, but I feel they are best suited to supporting characters and antagonists, whereas others are uh, cults that player characters may more be more interested in joining. And I see the Penning Dining Club as one of the ones that's most versatile, which I appreciate from a design perspective. Uh, I think that if you are playing a stuck-up Ventru, or more, more specifically, probably a Toreador, and you want to play someone who's jaded, you want to play someone who wants to try new things because, God, everything old is dull, uh, then a an exclusive invitation to join this cult that worships the act of feeding is 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 a brilliant story arc to take a character down um and i'm i'm a big fan i think that one appears in the ruinous beliefs chapter which is where we start dealing with the diabolical and the infernal and the less uh, even less savory activities uh i'm a big fan of the Golconda cults in this book, um, in our Dreams of Golconda chapter, because none of them are verifiable. None of them can absolutely say, yes, I know the one true way to Golconda. Uh, but they try. You know, they, they are convinced. And if you just happen to fail on that path, it just means you weren't enlightened enough. And you've got um, everything from the Children of Salvation, which is quite a broad and inclusive church, through to the Butterflies, who are all about metamorphosis and changing a very sort of localised level. You join families uh, of these cultists, and you very rarely interact with vampires outside of them. Um, all the way to, uh, and right now, uh, I know, damn me, I, I'm forgetting the name. Um, we've got a cult of uh, aesthetes who, in the old style, basically segregate themselves from society to pursue Golconda in solitude. Uh, it, as their ancestors may have, they may climb a pole in in the desert and sit atop it to meditate. Obviously, that's quite a difficult proposition for a vampire, uh, especially when the dawn comes. Uh, so I added a sidebar that says, I wish I brought a book. But... <laughs> uh, I've but we've we've tinkered around with them to make them interesting as I guess wise eccentric cultists who firmly believe in their roots Golconda, um, but harbour a very dangerous inner core because they are staving off the beast. They're staving off the need to feed for days, weeks, maybe even months. So when it finally comes for them to rejoin society and spread a bit of wisdom, they're ticking time bombs. They're permanently on the edge of just exploding and losing all that control they've spent so long building up. So yes, um, there's a lot to look forward to in these two books. And I should say should say, for the listener's sake, uh, that this isn't the only cult of the Blood God stretch goal that's uh, out there. There's also Trails of Ash and Bone. And while Trails of Ash and Bone isn't a book co-developed with Clara and John, Clara was one of the writers on it. 
And Trails of Ash and Bone is a book of stories, playable stories, just like Let the Streets Run Red, which, as of time of recording, may even be out to customers. Uh, we've incorporated the last of the errata into that, and all the page XXs have been changed. So now it's just a matter of when we are given the go-ahead to release it. But Trails of Ash and Bone does a similar thing, and that means it has a bevy of stories that deal with cults, both big and small, uh, a micro level or, well, the opposite macro level, um, and take you to various domains that you can choose to use or not. The domains tend to be background to these, whereas Let the Streets Run Red had the domains almost as a core part of each scenario. Uh, only one of the scenarios in this book has the domain as uh, as that um the rest including clara's have the domain as background but it's what's going on right in front of you that is important so clara it, i didn't tell you uh, in advance of this so i hope you don't mind but would you mind telling the audience what your story in trails of ash and bone is about no, uh, I wouldn't. Uh, but I don't want to spoil too much. Uh, oh no! Don't don't spoil I, the end. No. Um, <laughs> I will say that um, it is very much focused on raw emotion and humanity. So, um, it's not necessary for the game to work. But I will say, if you want to play a game that really focuses on the inner fears and struggles of humans and thereby vampires then um my stories is definitely something i would recommend um it's very much focused on a group of cultists that you suddenly gain responsibility over and you kind of have to decide what do I do with all of these hopeless people that have not seen society for a very long time? Um, and do I, do I kill them? Or is that okay? Or should I take them to someone that can help them? And who can help them? Can they come back into society again? There is uh, also a, a... I would say a... Um, a conflict with uh, a cult leader that you have to decide what to do with. Um, and it bears the theme of isolation and kind of this otherworldly feeling you sometimes will get when you are in a very isolated place. Like if you are in the middle of the woods and all you can hear are the wind in the grass and tweeting of the birds and you see this random cabin in the middle of it and you suddenly feel this pull to go towards it because you think you saw something in the window. Um, that is kind of that feeling and I hope that I've encompassed that. And yeah, that's all I want, I want to say. Well, I'm going to say a little bit more. <laughs> because I think that's a wonderful teaser, and you've been very coy, excellently so, about uh, what's in that story. Um, what I just want to add is it and the other stories in Trails, uh, but I would highlight that story, The Wellspring, as probably the prime example of this, is a story that feels to me uniquely V5, 
in tone because v5 has such a strong connection to humanity uh, it's less concerned with the higher echelons of politics at least at this point it's all about the the journey of the fledglings and the neonates i guess the expectation is that most characters are still going to have those ties to humanity are still going to feel a pang of guilt if they just snuff out a life one would hope so and that means this story for me feels distinctly v5 because yeah as as clara said you come into the unexpected ownership or stewardship of a bunch of cultists um majority of him immortal and you can't just murder them uh well i guess you can but for that there will be consequences and it puts you in a position as a storyteller and as players where you have to have a certain amount of buy-in, a certain amount of investment. I think V5 is very good at this with its chronicle tenets where you outline ahead of time that the players need to essentially buy in to what the plots could be and not just say, screw this, and take up with a machine gun and massacre everyone and derail the plot. And while a, a player could say, well, I want the freedom to do that, it's all about a collaborative storytelling experience and assisting each other and making a story interesting for everyone in the group. And I think The Wellspring is an interesting story in that regard because it it definitely requires that investment, but I think if you get it from the players, it really pays off. Um, it just is such a rewarding story to play through because it tests a vampire. It tests a vampire's humanity, and that's at the core of a vampire's being. Well, that and a beast. Yeah. And and I will add something too. I mean, I will add something that when you think of occultists, um, it's not the cultists in the wellspring are not these, um, cloak clad, uh, brainwashed individuals. They are all individuals with lives, stories, reasons to be in this cult. And you get to know them very intimately. Um, you get to befriend them maybe and create a relationship with these people. And that's what makes it really hard for you to actually just dispose of them because you would just say, well, if they, I don't know, if they know about the masquerade or if they are cultists, you can, I guess you can't use them anymore. So why use time on them? But due to the fact that you're kind of stuck with them, you have an opportunity to get to know these people and figure out that, the reason people seek into cults are not always for malicious reasons. It's not always because they are less intelligent or desperate. Sometimes it's because they need an escape. And even a vampire with just, you know, a little bit of humanity can have sympathy for that. Hmm. That's a lovely, lovely way to put it. So, John, um, as we're getting close to time on our interview now, I do have a question for you, uh, which is, and it's, I guess, the big one, if you were to develop any supplement for Vampire the Masquerade, if you had full reign to not only outline something, but know that it was going to get approved, and you got to develop it from beginning to end without any interference, what would you do? What is your dream project for Vampire? Uh, I think I would quite like to do a city source book 
based in my home country of Scotland and I think that would save us from all these one horse towns like Gary getting coverage. <laughs> <laughs> Some people um, really like Gary. Ah, bring them on. Um, <laughs> the yeah, I mean, I think there's if you look at World of Darkness in general, not even just vampire, World of Darkness lore, there's actually quite a rich tapestry of stuff going on up here, and not very much written about the place. If you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, and I have for a while thought to myself I actually considered doing it for Storytellers Vault um, and I might still but I've just not had the time <laughs> but yeah I think if I was to do anything at all it'd probably be that um, and I would be very happy to see it realised and be at the helm of it given my very Glaswegian <laughs> bent to the whole thing <laughs> Consider the project. Um, uh, no, I was going to say approved, but I don't have that power. So that's a nice idea, John. You don't have uh, the power, Captain. <laughs> <laughs> You're playing to your own stereotype there. There's only one person you can hurt here, John, and it's yourself. That's it. Well, if, if you're going to hurt someone, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, what about you, Clara? Is there a dream vampire project, or are you looking maybe farther afield at different games? Um, <laughs> I, uh, I think, I mean, I, I would love to work on a core book. <laughs> uh, I don't know which one because I have no idea what lies in the future, but that would be mm-hmm. great. Uh, that would be great to work on a big project, um, where, um, where I, I don't know, I could, I could feel like I, I, I could do you know, a difference um, and and create something that would be enjoyable for for a lot of people. Um, also, I want to write about Clan Cappadocian. I don't know why, but I... <laughs> Good. That's, that's, kicking that's it. kicking yeah. it old school there, uh, calling it Clan <laughs> Cappadocian. It's the Hakata now. We're in 5th edition. Yeah, um, sure. But no. Um, yeah, uh, we're both Cappadocians at heart, I know. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, you would like to develop your own role-playing game, a core yeah. rulebook. Yeah, your own core rulebook. Mm, okay, interesting. Well, we shall see what the future holds. Maybe that will happen. I hope so. Um, certainly, I've had the opportunity to do that now, and it is a delight to see a game you have come up with from concept uh, all the way through to fruition. With they came from beneath the sea. It's uh, still mind-blowing to me that that has happened. And, yeah, it hasn't ended. And so, in fact, just before we end the interview, which I know is running a little long, I just wanted to speak to both of you about your experiences on They Came From and books you might be working on right now. Um, Specifically, They Came From Camp Murder Lake. Um, My question to you is, I guess, regarding slashers, what draws you to this kind of horror genre? What do you think you can get out of that sort of horror game that you can't out of, let's say, Beyond the Grave or Vampire the Masquerade? Anyone? Either of you? Slashers? I thought you said it was Flashers. Uh, no, no, that's a different game. That's, <laughs> that's they came from. Too. Yeah, they, they came, they came from, from behind the bush. Yeah. I, I was about to say the exact same thing. They, they, see, this is why we work so well together. Where you can and you can finish my every. It's an add-on. 
They came from beneath a brown coat. Yes. <laughs> Um, or it could just yeah, be it could so... just be they came and just leave it at that. Anyway, <laughs> you've lowered oh you've lowered God. the tone. You know, you know. There's a guy called um, he's a fantastic GM. His name is Todd. Won't give his surname just in case he uh, doesn't want it shared. But he um, he's an American chap and often flies over to the UK for UK gaming conventions. He's a fantastic guy. Brilliant GM. Loves running unknown armies. And one of his um, tricks and foibles is when he's re- when he's running a game, he's very much about maintaining the tone, uh, and he he likes immersion. He likes people to invest in horror. And so, if someone starts going off track, as I often do uh, as a player, I will start gibbering away to myself. Uh, he will just stop what he's doing. He'll look at you and he'll, he'll say, "Remember the tone. Remember the tone." As if it's, you know, sort of, and you're back in the room. So, John, remember the tone. (laughs) (laughs) It's a Uh, B-sharp. So, so remembering the tone, I think (laughs) that a horror game based in the 80s is, first of all, just very nostalgic to a lot of people. You know, people that are currently, you know, role-playing and playing tabletop games, so many of them have grew up in the 80s or born in the 80s and i think it's a very unique genre to horror in 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 that era um i think creating uh uh i i'm writing uh monsters uh for the game or uh antagonists and i think having that balance between uh slashers that are just slashers because they are because that was just what horror 80 horror movie slashers were just some of them had like a revenge plot or some of them were just like they just like to kill people but make that interesting enough to be a role-playing game i think that is is what is a lot of fun about this game um and i think there is a lot of focus on teenagers and a lot of focus on this the the danger of of you know having sex before marriage and all that stuff kind of these implicit messages that if you drive off with you know your your high school sweetheart and you kiss and love is lane oh what might happen so i think there's a lot of messages that is really fun to play around with when it comes to an 80s horror game too and uh do you have any particular villains that you would like to tease the audience with uh, being included in this game uh, can I can I get my list? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, Do you have any favorites that you've been working on recently? Um, By all means, so, if you want to remain quiet about it, you can. No, no. Um, I think the Dream Stalker is someone that's really interesting because it's something you see with, for example, Freddy Krueger. Um, mm-hmm. and kind of this like uh, this idea of you know when you go to sleep you can't really rest because there's this thing haunting you and I, and I love to play around with that and play around with sleep paralysis as well and, and having them you know have some sort of you know um, special ability that can, can give you sleep paralysis because it's something I suffer from myself and I know a lot of people do and I know how scary that can be so that I have a personal connection to that um, protagonist or oh, antagonist. So yeah, 
Hmm, lovely. And what about you, John? Uh, your relationship with Camp Murder Lake and uh, and slasher movies or horror movies of the eighties? I think um, they're a very good foil for a they came from game on the basis that there is something intensely, especially now, um, sort of camp and um, almost farcical about some of the films, but um, in their intent, they are. And, and certainly in their execution, in many cases, uh, they're very serious. So it is something I think that when you talk about they came from, to me, it's about you can play this game with absolute humour, you can play this game with absolute seriousness. And I think that those movies have the option to take it either way. Um, but I would say that it's probably more on the serious side compared to what's come before it. Um, and yeah, it's tough to echo something Clara said that I've always thought those kinds of films that it does. It's almost always to me a sort of coming of age, um, sort of teenage sort of thing. If you want, you know, that that sort of terror of of growing up, of leaving your comfort zone, of of going outside the, the campfire, you know, <laughs> away mm-hmm. from, um, and sort of going into the the big bad world and saying, "Oh, I'm not, I'm not going to be coddled by by the group." pack anywhere, I'm going to go over here and my own, oh, you're dead, you know, um, and it, it plays to that very sort of primal fear that I think we all have about moving away from, from comfort and safety, and um, yeah, uh, I, I really think that, as I say, in a They Came From game, um, certainly from my, I think I've worked on everything in that line now, just about, um, then <laughs> it, 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 treads, it treads the line brilliantly, and it gives you opportunities to um, to, to sit and have a laugh around the table or if you're in the mood, do something a lot more serious than that. Wonderful. All right, well, in that case, I should call time on our interview and thank you both very, very much for attending. Uh, I would like to ask, and by all means, you may not want to share this information, but if you do, uh, Clara, if people wanted to find you on social media, where do you generally direct them um, to, get, to, ke- to keep up with your work? Uh, go to my Twitter, uh, X Lady Gamer X. Um, you can find me there. I also have a Instagram you can go to, um, which is also X Lady Gamer X. So that's really easy. <laughs> so yeah, go there. And um, what about you, John? Uh, I am on Twitter as John P Burke eighty two. I am that old, and the. I have an Instagram which I don't really use because I am not a particularly handsome person, um, and oh. occasionally, occasionally you might see pictures of my my daughter who is very handsome. Um, not in that way. Calm down, you look horrible. She's only two, um, and yeah, that really I would stick to Twitter probably. Um, but I don't talk about myself much. I, I talk about everything else so much that <laughs> I don't get much time to talk about myself. So. It's probably um, for the best. Social media is a horrible place. That's true. Better not tell anyone anything about myself. No, no, you've already gone too far in this interview. <laughs> It'll turn into a slasher film. <laughs> Stay in my comfort zone or I will get stabbed by Jason Voorhees. <laughs> that's what I was thinking you were going to say, Jason Carl, then. And Jason, Jason oh, Carl, I, yeah. I, 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 I don't think you're listening, Jason, but uh, if you are, please don't murder us in our sleep. It doesn't so, strike me as a sort of stabby kind of guy, to be honest. 
if Jason those are always were, the ones you need to watch, right? Yeah, I was going to say if Jason was a slasher, how would he do it? But you know what? Let's let's leave it there uh, before we start disparaging his good character um, and making a bad one for him. And say thank you very much, John and Clara, for attending. And we will now fly back to Eddie and Dixie. Fly, my beauties, fly. And we're back. Of course we are. And it's time to dig up Eddie. I'll just lift a couple of planks. Oh, oh. Ow. Comfortable? Did you, like, hire a football team to walk through that house during this recording? <laughs> or? Yes, I did. And, <laughs> and they weren't even a good football team either. Uh, so and oh, of course Dixie, Dixie, you left her behind the painting, and so let's just move Mrs. Eisenhower out the way and help Dixie I'm just, down. I'm just sitting back here eating popcorn. It's oh, okay. pretty chill. I, I didn't realize it was that roomy. Is, I'm, I'm, back here. I'm very small. It's a very large painting. It is a very large port back here. How'd that happen? <laughs> I'm just sitting. I'm just sitting back here playing Animal Crossing. <laughs> just, just, just chilling with the switch. Next time we must find less comfortable accommodation. You, no, no, this is this is very uncomfortable. I hate it. I hate it in here. Oh, very well, very well. <laughs> uh, so we won't play the usual game of, so what did you think of the interview? Um, because we know that these two <laughs> hosts haven't heard it yet. But I do hope the listeners have enjoyed it. Um, there was obviously a lot discussed uh, regarding vampire and the development process. So hopefully there was some insight given. And it was uh, suitably entertaining too. Uh, we even spoke a little about uh, they came from Camp Murder Lake and the uh, two of them oh, really? because they're both working on it, uh, as are the two of you. Yeah. What? Yeah, I know. And that's uh, got a nice Halloween tie-in, hasn't it? Everybody yeah. on this episode worked on they came from Camp Murder Lake. Yeah. Or is going to work on it in the future. Yeah, right. if you haven't started working on your draft yet, Dixie. I have so much time. <laughs> Don't worry, I've not started developing it yet either. It's fine. I was going to say we haven't had a, had a meeting about it yet. <laughs> like, no, no, we which we're not going to, but it's fine. Uh, well, uh, I've booked a meeting, but whether you turn up or True. not is uh, interesting. Mm. Um, mm. But it, it's um, it's an interesting one because the crew on Camp Murder Lake, for the sake of the listeners, aren't a for the most part aren't new hands uh, i've gone for people who are already familiar with they came from for the most part um because i this is a source book ultimately to beyond the grave and i kind of wanted it done quickly with minimal heavy lifting <laughs> yeah so i'm admitting here to wanting an easier time of it which i don't mm. think is a great crime i think occasionally we need those books where we can just look at the entire team and think okay that's a solid crew we can uh, we can rely on. Red lines should be nice and quick. So that's the hope. So don't screw it up, you two. <laughs> I mean, the really good thing about the fact that I'm writing fiction is that it's kind of supposed to be not great. Because <laughs> it's they came from. So if, like, if it's not great, then I did my job right. <laughs> as long as it's that is, funny. That is very true. You've got a get out there. So if I feel very critical about it, you could say, it was meant to be bad. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, feel like the, I feel like the reverse is going to happen. I have to, I'm sorry, Dixie, this is too good. You have to make it much worse. <laughs> 
Um, so here's a question that's suitably Halloween-y for the both of you. Um, actually, let's make it a double-pronged, a bifurcated question, if you will. Dixie, uh, what's your favorite horror movie, first of all? Oh, God. Mm, um, that's a big one. Uh, I like the ones that have that, that are kind of subversive and a little like black comedy. So it would be something like Cabin in the Woods or like Tucker and Dale versus Evil. Yeah, that, those are excellent movies, especially Tucker and Dale. I love those. Yeah, probably. Yeah, I mean, it's really hard to say what, what, what my favorite is because like my favorite actual scary movies, I like Midsommar, I like The Babadook. Um, like movies that are like genuinely like unsettling to me. But when it comes to movies that I just find enjoyable to watch over and over again, it would be like Scream and Tucker and Dale and stuff like that. And uh, what would you consider your favorite slasher movie? Would that be Scream? Probably Scream, just because it was the first one that I ever saw. Um, yeah. And it, it, it kind of got me into the horror genre in general. Like, that was the first horror movie I saw. Um, well, like, true horror movie. I, I'd seen, like, kids' things, like, Night Before Christmas or whatever. But, like, first, like, true horror movie was, like, you know, at a sleepover in seventh grade with my friends, like, renting it on VHS. <laughs> um <laughs> And, like, covering my eyes at certain points because I had never really seen gore before. And it was a whole new experience mm. to me. Um, and now going back and looking at it and being like, Scream's actually kind of tame compared to other movies I've seen. Uh, but, yeah, no, that's, that's, that's probably my favorite slasher just because it was the first one. And I, 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 I've since gone back and watched all the movies that it was kind of sending up and paying homage to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, it's, it's just got a, 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 you know, special place in my heart. As a, as a, a mid, mid-90s slasher movie. Well, yeah, and I think it's a movie that doesn't get enough credit by from today's audience for being as smart as it is. It yeah. somehow succeeds yeah. at being a scary movie, uh, unlike the parody of that name, and yet is also incredibly meta, and yeah, it hits all the right beats, but it's clever enough to do so without seeming samey. Uh, somehow it, it instills a bit of freshness in the slasher genre while mm-hmm. paying homage to a huge number of slasher movies, which is no small feat. Also, it started the kind of slasher renaissance. Yeah. Like, there was yeah. there were a lot of slashers in the like late 70s through the 80s, and then there weren't many for a while, or they were getting progressively sillier, like all the mm. sequels to various slasher movies. Yeah. And then Scream came along, and people went, oh, right, this genre is scary. And then there were a whole bunch after that, uh, which I, I always thought was really cool. What about you, Eddie? What's your favorite horror movie? Um, again, it's kind of a tricky question, but for different reasons. I don't actually watch a ton of horror, um, perhaps surprisingly. I didn't, I didn't read horror more than I watch it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but... Uh, I kind of have two answers for that. Um, uh, one is for a long time, I used to let you like Final Destination. Uh, Those are uh, fun. Just, Those are just yeah. fun. <laughs> yeah, because it was it was um, an interesting kind of conceit, and also uh, it, it it had the kind of absurd, elaborate coincidences that a lot of films rely on, but at least they had an explanation for it. Yeah. Right. Um, and yeah. so I got to enjoy the increasingly implausible potential death scenes. And some right. of them just actually hit, and so you actually didn't know which implausible death scene was actually going to be the one that does something or not. So I liked that anticipation. It was a very different kind of anticipation to most horror films. Yeah, it's a, like a stripped back version of The Omen, 
mm-hmm. basically, without you know, right. without all of the Satanist uh, paraphernalia that goes around the omen. Uh, mm-hmm. It is still a case where lots of people die in very unusual ways because Damien wants them to die, and in the case of Final Destination, they just die in lots of different ways because they cheated death. Yeah, uh, but it's otherwise a very similar take. Uh, what about uh, for slasher movies? Um, honestly, the first Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, that was the first film that really fucked me up when I was a kid. Oh, <laughs> um, because I watched it when I was way too young and it was that real strong intersection of i am way too young to watch some of this stuff which is frankly it's pretty tame by by, by now i'm watching it but at the time i was like i don't get this combined with that slight i really have no idea what's happening here because it's so dreamlike by Mm. by design Mm -hmm. um so i as a kid thought there was things going on that i didn't understand and then you watch later and go oh no it's intentionally at certain points, Ill- illogical. Right. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was, it was I, I, I just didn't watch horror films for a long time after that because it just it was like, oh God, no, I didn't like that. Um, and it was that kind of weird thing of like, I liked it and respect it and appreciate it now, but at the time, I was just so overwhelmed by feeling uncomfortable mm-hmm. by the film that now I really do enjoy it because I recognize, oh, that was the goal. Yeah, yeah. I was I I was reading horror for years and years and years before I ever saw a horror movie. Although mm-hmm. I always say that, but I do have a story, real quick. Sure. Um, go ahead. So when I was five, uh, I had a next door neighbor named Chris. Um, I can I can use his full name because there are eight million people named Chris Smith in this world. Um, <laughs> but I, I he was my age, and his parents did not give a shit what he did. Uh, he is the reason that I was playing video games when I was five, because they had a Nintendo at their house. But also, he is the reason that I saw part of a horror movie when I was five, and then I left. Um, we, we were at his house, and he had put in a movie called Dolly Dearest, which some of you might recognize. Uh, mm. It is a slasher movie, and there's an evil doll, and it's very creepy and weird. And it's probably not creepy at all when you're an adult. Um, but it's a five-year-old who had never seen anything like gore. I was pretty much steeped in like Disney and Rainbow Bright and She-Ra at that point in my life. Um, it was the grossest thing I had ever seen. Uh, but I didn't want to admit to my mom that that was happening. So I didn't want to go home. So I just let him watch it. And I went and sat in his bedroom and played NES <laughs> for like an hour and a half. Uh, so technically, that was the first horror movie I ever saw. But I, I, I didn't finish it. And I don't count it. That's perfectly fair. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, no, I, I, and that's not a movie I've seen. I mean, I think Child's Play is probably the most well-known animated doll uh, horror movie. Yeah, um, it's certainly the one most people refer to, and no doubt we will have all kinds of Chucky-style antagonists, and they came from Camp Murder Lake as well. You yeah, to, really. This 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 uh, this movie actually had Denise Crosby and Rip Torn in it. Oh. I wow. find looking it up. But I don't remember it being very good. It's 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 a four point eight out of ten on uh, IMDb. So, Rip does high. have does have a very evocative name. Yes. Like red buttons. Right. Yeah. Anyway, uh, <laughs> as the crows are cawing. Uh, oh yes, and I suppose uh, my horror movie. Um, yes. Not that anyone asked, uh, would be. You're the host. <laughs> it's literally your job you have to, to ask. ask yourself. 
really, really, is that how it's going to work now? I'll remember this. <laughs> is probably the thing for just pure enjoyment. Uh, I wouldn't say I find the thing terribly scary now. I mean, there's not many horror movies that you find scary on repeat watches. But I still think The Thing is one of the best made horror movies. Uh, just perf- perfection. There is nothing I would change about The Thing. Uh, it's the kind of movie that I would force friends to watch. Uh, so I'm mm-hmm. that kind of person. And in terms of slasher, we've got to go back to our old favourite on the Pathcast being The Stepfather. Uh, <laughs> which, slasher... which, which you have mandated has to be in they came from Camp Murder Lake yes I That's have like, that is like the one slasher that you were like it has to be in here I don't care what all the other ones that are iconic I need a stepfather yeah um, and Clara who is working on that section said I've never seen this movie uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I said she speaks no. for all of us yes I said no one has um, but now it is your mission to do so. Um, I'm sure since no. you talked about in the Pathcast, sales of that movie have doubled in the past month. Well, you know, it's easy to go from one to two. But, Correct. Yeah. <laughs> I have I have looked up Dolly Dearest, by the way, while we're talking, and I want to say that I don't recommend it because it seems like it's probably pretty racist. And oh, that no it, it, like, it, 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 it deals with, like, a, you know, sarcophagus in... Mexico full of evil spirits. So, okay. don't watch it. It's probably pretty racist. Yeah, we'll stick to Tucker and Dale. That's a much better movie. But That's a great movie. Um, so, what's my favourite slasher then? Because it's not really The Stepfather. It's very easy to say <laughs> the first Friday the 13th. Mm-hmm. Uh, because... Mm-hmm. Uh, and I only saw this one pretty late on. I think I saw most of the Friday the 13th sequels before I ever saw the original. So it came as a surprise to me that Jason Voorhees isn't the killer in the first movie. And not, I'm not going to oh. provide spoilers for a, an old movie just in case anyone hasn't watched it yet uh, as to who the killer is. I feel like but, I knew that going in, but it was still good. Mm, uh, but yeah, there's a, it's played seriously. And I think that's the big danger with all of the many, many sequels to the Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street's Hellraisers and so on, is that, and Halloween's, it's that it gets increasingly farcical, uh, oh, especially yeah. Nightmare mm-hmm. on Elm Street with, and, and Friday the 13th, for that matter, with Jason Takes Manhattan. It's all a bit... Uh, tongue-in-cheek, which, of course, I don't mind, but that's not necessarily what I always want from a horror. But yeah, Friday, yeah. The- in Space, there was yeah. Jason vs. Freddy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I definitely yeah. saw all the, like, 90s slashers before I ever went back and watched the ones that were kind of before I was old enough to watch them. So, yeah. like, my, my slasher movies growing up were, like, I Know What You Did Last Summer and Urban Legend and mm. The Faculty. Uh, yeah, that's a really good movie, and that's a, an underrated one, uh, yeah. I would say. I like all of them. Like they're all good, in my opinion. But it's 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 just interesting because like I remember seeing all of those, and that was kind of where I formed my opinion of slashers. And then I had to go, and I I went back and was like, oh, this is all based on this genre. But these now seem a little silly to me because the ones I've seen have way better special effects. <laughs> right. Uh, so yeah, but to be honest, any further talk on this subject, we should probably reserve for another Camp Murder Lake themed episode. So let's do it. Uh, yeah, with that said, let's go through let's go through social media info. Eddie, if someone wants to look you up online, where would they go? 
Uh, they can find me at pugstudy.com. From there, they have links to all the stuff I've worked on as well as my social media accounts. And what about you, Dixie? They can find me at DixieCochran.com or DixieCyanide on most social media. And they can find me on MatthewDawkins.com, through which they can find all my links to all my social media, including my lovely Patreon. Send me money. (laughs) But not before you back the Ghost Hunters Kickstarter. There you go, Rich. And with (laughs) Uh, with, with that said, Many Worlds, One Pathcast.